Now, as I took up reading Acts chapter 8, verse 1, when it started and said, and Saul approved of his execution, that seemed to start from nowhere, unless you've been reading along and following, the execution that he approved of was that of Stephen from the previous chapter. Last week, we looked at that uh, ministry of Stephen, how he... They challenged him, but he confounded them by answering faithfully all of their challenges. His wisdom and his spirit was more than they could stand. And then when challenged, he delivered the gospel to them. And the fact is this, and the scriptures make it clear, the word of God is like a two-edged sword. And what happens when, when, when that sword cuts to those who are in sin... And those who are rebellious and rejecting Christ, it hurts. It confronts them with their inadequacy. It confronts them with their unrighteousness. It confronts them with their sin, their rebellion, and their unworthiness. And they don't like it. And he confronted them with the strongest language really to paint a picture to them that they would understand it. That though they are Jews by heritage and though they were even the Sanhedrin, the council, among the elite and leadership of the Jews. By rejecting Christ, by denying the one. Sent of God who suffered for the sins of people, his people, by rejecting him, they needed to understand that they themselves were not God's people. And so he used that strong language, you are uncircumcised in heart. To them, that meant you at your very core are apart from God. Now, when a similar thing was said on the day of Pentecost, many were cut to the heart and said, what must we do to be saved? But on this day, that was not the response of the people. It wasn't what must we do to be saved. It's we will not have you speak of Christ, exalting him and speak to us, bringing us down. And they rose up and they stoned him. Now, as we move from that stoning uh, into chapter 8, we rem were reminded that those who were stoning him, those who were the witnesses and participants in that act of stoning, they laid their coats at the feet, it tells us in the previous chapter, of a young man named Saul. This is where we begin to get an introduction to Saul. And, and as we begin to do it, the, our initial introduction to Saul, who later we come to know as Paul. Saul, Paul is the same guy who has written all of these uh, wonderful books in Scripture. The introduction to him is quite negative. In this context, we, we're going to unfold three different ideas. And that, that is that there is great persecution spoken of in this passage. There is great power spoken of. And there is a greater power and a greater name. And we're going to work our way through those things. First of all, we see the great persecution. Remember, uh, until this time, the only persecution to a degree that has come against the church has come specifically and directly against the leaders. It is the apostles themselves that were taken, that were imprisoned, that were beaten and told to no longer preach in that name. 
But what did they say? You judge for yourselves whether or not it is right. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We must obey God rather than men. But nonetheless, the scripture goes on. And as we work our way towards chapter 8, we see that it, it oft says that they had favor among the people and favor in the community. So things were going on reasonably well. But what happens is, as those that God has marked out for mercy among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, which was many, by this point in time, we know that it, it's, it's more than 5,000 men. But now those who, to whom the gospel is being preached with more frequency and more regularity aren't the receivers, they are the rejectors. <laughs> And so they're hearing again and again of their own sin and their circumstances of enmity with God, and they don't like it. And so into that, when Stephen comes and proclaims it, here is the time where things move from uh, joy and peace to tolerance and from tolerance to persecution. Now, we don't have a clear and exact timetable on how fast it happened. Uh, different scholars will give you different ones, and that, that really doesn't matter. In some times, in some places, it happens quickly, and sometimes in places, it happens slowly. It's not the time that matters. It's to recognize the persecution breaks out. And in the breaking out of the persecution, we are introduced to what I, I refer to here as Saul the Scourge. He is used like a, a whip, like an instrument of torture. He started out, and it's interesting because he started out kind of just as an onlooker. Young fella, they, they lay, the, lay the coats at his feet. He sees what they're doing and approves of it. The language there does not indicate that he was involved in picking up and casting stones. But... He approved of it. And it almost seems like seeing that event stirred something in him. Like he missed out on participating in that. Missed out on doing that. And it goes on to tell us a little bit more about this Saul the Scourge in verse 3. It says this. But Saul was ravaging the church. Entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. I mean, this is strong language, the way that it's coming up there. Uh, the, the ESV there said he was ravaging. The King James there says he made havoc. Uh, the, the way that the word really unfolds is that he was relentless in his persecution. Relentless in his intent to devastate and destroy the name of Christ. And, and, and in that it says he was entering house after house. Now the King James there, there says uh, he was entering every house. They made up the word every. Because he wasn't entering every house. He was entering the houses of believers. House after house. And here's something I want us to note which is nice. You know persecution we're hearing it in the context of persecution. We say ooh. But he was entering house after house. He knew which houses to enter. 
those who were committed to Christ, it was not a secret thing. It was not a hidden thing. It was not an unknown thing. Their love for their Savior was not the, not the thing of whispers. It was the thing of song. It was the thing, the thing of shout to the Lord. It was the thing of speak and overflow and praise. Not, not a thing that they could be silent on. Remember, it was initially after Jesus had, had died and resurrected that the, they were hiding in the upper room, the apostles were. But Jesus reminded them in Acts chapter 1, listen, you will receive power. And after that, you will be my witnesses. And on the day of Pentecost, we remember well what happened. They received power. And from being men who to some extent were relatively silent and relatively fearful, what happened on that day of Pentecost? They stood forward and they proclaimed Christ with a boldness, publicly, unashamedly. And that boldness continued, getting them imprisoned multiple times, threatened and beaten multiple times. That boldness and that receiving of the Spirit was not only to them, because we remember, on that day of Pentecost, the message says this, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Christ, in the name of Jesus, and you will receive the promised Holy Spirit. And so those believers as well were themselves bold. It was a known thing. And it wasn't through ornamentation. It wasn't through signs necessary. I mean, they didn't know we were a believer because we wore a cross necklace. Or even because we had uh, uh, three crosses in the yard. No, no. They knew because everywhere these people went, they had a new passion, a new identity, a new value. You know, the world has no problem talking about the things that are important to them and the things that they value, whatever it may be. For some, it may be something, you know, as ordinarily north of the border as hockey. <laughs> For others, it could be uh, something else. The, this time of year, the NBA. Or, or, or others, the weather. Huh, for some, it's quilting. I mean, there, there, there are a curious array of areas of interest. And if it happens to be our area of interest, it doesn't take much for people to provoke us to, you know, weave quilting into the conversation. You know, how, however it would work, because that's all we're thinking about most of the time. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what enraptures our heart and thoughts and energies most of the time. It's what engages us. And, and if it's on your mind, and if it is just overflowing from your heart, I might go so far as to say, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Of course, that's not me who said that, but we know that's that to be true. And so it was known who they were. And Saul was seeking them out, hunting them down, arresting men and women. I mean, here was no gender bias taking place here. But it also shows that with regard to Saul's attacks, 
There was no gentleness. There was no mercy. Well, Saul, do you realize if you, what's going to happen to their kids if you arrest their mom and dad? Does he care? Does not care because there is no mercy. He's that convinced. He's that zealous. In Acts chapter 7, um, or it, it had told us that they had laid those at his feet. But listen to how he, Saul describes himself in Galatians 1.14. In his life as a youth in Jerusalem, he says this in Acts 1.14. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many my age, beyond my contemporaries. I was a prodigy. You know, I was the next great hope among my people. So he says, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. And therein lies his abundant error. What was his zeal? What was his commitment? What was his energy all focused on? Not the word of God. Not the truth of God, but the traditions of his ancestors. Listening to men. Men's minds, men's hearts, men's ways, men's practices. And we have those today who are committed to all kinds of traditions of men. Worse than that, we have those today who instead of being committed to traditions of, of, of various ideas that men have manufactured, they look around and see what all men, even in darkness and unbelief, what they like. And they think, you know what we'll do? We'll establish new traditions based on the prevailing culture. We'll do our best to be as much like the world as possible. That is a dangerous mistake. And we're going to see and hear that is not the commitment of the believers. That is, not the, that is not the commitment of Paul afterwards, right? He was committed with zeal to the tradition of the ancestors. But later he says, hey, I'm a steward of the word of God. My responsibility is to make the word of God fully known. I'm done with what I've received from men. What I declare to you, I receive from the Lord Jesus Christ. So we don't mess with the ideas of men. And, and, and you'll get this sometimes in your conversations with others, well-meaning others. And you will be discussing maybe an area of difference in belief between you and them. And we can also be guilty of this as well. And the tendency can be like this. To quote a historic hero and says, well, I believe this because John Bunyan said, I believe this because Charles Spurgeon said, you know, and we can go on and on. Augustine said, uh, you know, Thomas Boston said, John Owen said, uh, John Wesley said, whoever it may be, people will go. But when you repeat what another person has said, does that make it true? Does that make it valid? 
I mean, what those men said may be beneficial in so much as they are rightly rendering the word of God. Now, some of these men have richly, committedly studied the word of God and then taught it well and taught it faithfully. But be careful that, uh, that we, we realize, why, why would we stop at the man instead of also going beyond him to the source? As John Owen said when he was expounding on the clear teaching of Romans such and such. And then you, and then you go. So that people always understand it's not these men who are on the podium. It's not these men who are the authority. But it is God's word. And we are thankful for men that God continues to rise up in every generation to preach the word of God faithfully. But this is what we must do. The whole purpose of the reformation that took place just over 500 years ago is, is what happened is Martin Luther began in his study of the Greek New Testament to recognize the scripture was so different than the church practice. And he realized who ultimately has authority over what we believe and what we do? Do men, no matter what their ecclesiastical position, do men have the right to teach differently than what Christ has taught us in his word. He said, no, we must listen to Christ. We must listen to his word. And so this is again, but please note this. What Saul was doing, he was doing it because he was zealous. Look at uh, um, Acts chapter 26, verse 9 says this. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and enraging fury that is enraged beyond measure. Against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So I want us to note this. It said in those two verses, one, he was zealous. Secondly, it says he was convinced. Two words in these two verses to speak of him. Sometimes we use that same notion. Well, they don't go to a true church. And they don't believe the gospel. But they're sincere. They're committed. They're devout. And then sometimes we actually present that as if we need to respect their devoutness. Respect their convictions. Well, we need to treat them with respect as a fellow human. But with regard to what they believe... What they are committed to. What they are convinced of. I will have no respect of that. As I have no respect of what I may have once formerly believed. Before God was pleased to reveal his gospel to me. Because this idea. Sometimes people will even look at different groups. and say, Or even a particular church. And, and not assess on the basis of faithfulness to the scripture. But the seeming sweetness of the people. You know, 
They must be believers. They're kind of nice. You know, they must love Jesus because they're generous. Well, no. God willing, those of us who do love Christ and, uh, and do know Jesus will have degrees of generosity and degrees of graciousness and kindness, sure, but simply having those things, those seeming sincerities, is not enough. Paul says regarding them in uh, Romans chapter 10, he says this, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is the Jews, his kindred according to the flesh, is that they may be saved. They're not saved. Then he goes on to say, I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. A zeal for God, yet not saved. That's a scary thing, isn't it? Because there are some people, like when we look at it, who will assess a church by the evident zeal when they, when they arrive. Was it, was it energetic? Was the place humming? Was there a sense of excitement and electricity there? Well, if it was, then we know this is the right place. We know this is a place where the spirit is at work. But see, people used to feel those things at Beatles concerts. And all kinds of other Things, I know that's a more ancient example, but nonetheless, I'm sure you've heard the history of such. Uh, uh, it's not just about zeal and commitment. Now, that we have truth in the gospel, that we have salvation in Christ, how much more zealous ought we be than them? How much more committed? Where, no, I will not be silent. Also interesting, within the context of this, Saul the scourge, when, when God was pleased to save him on the road to Damascus, we see even in Romans 10, what is the, one of the most resonant things in the beating of his heart is this earnest desire that his fellow Jews would be saved. This is one of the strongest passions he has. With regard to some of the Gentiles... He considers himself a debtor to them, obligated before God to deliver to the gospel to him, going and fulfilling that service. Those who come to Christ, loving them with all the affection of Christ. But if you were to ask him, brother, what kind of ministry do you want to have? He would have said, I want to be an apostle to the Jews. I want to go and serve God among my own people because my heart burns for their salvation. He even says in Romans 9, in terms of his heart for his own national people, he says, I wish I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. I mean, he, he has such a love for his own people that he's ready to say, I'm ready to give up my own salvation that many of them might be saved. Wow. Now, I want you to just listen to this very closely. Sometimes today, we, we, people say things like this. You know what? 
God has put a burden on my heart for these people in Pakistan. Or a burden on my heart for these, this specific tribe in South America. And, and you know, this is where God is calling me to go. This is what God wants me to do. Be cautious, my dear brother and sister, about that. Because if you were to ask Paul, what does it seem to you that God has put predominantly on your heart? He would say what? I'm ready to go and die. I'm ready to lose everything that the Jews might be saved. My, my earnest desire and prayer for them is that they may be saved. And then the scripture tells us in Galatians 2, 7 and 8. On the contrary, when they saw the apostles in Jerusalem, saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised. Just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. For he worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised. Is he who works through me uh, for mine to the Gentiles. That's why he says in Romans eleven thirteen. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. That's so different. Again, the, the, we live in a world that kind of says, you know, listen to your heart. And I always and oft remind you, no, no, no. Listen to the Lord. <laughs> Don't listen to your heart. Sometimes our hearts are tempted. Sometimes our hearts are deceived. We're, I, when in this, I'm, I'm not unreminded of, or I put it positively, I am reminded of. The occasion where David had it in his heart to build a temple for the Lord. And you know what he did? He called the prophet and said, it is in my heart to build a temple for the Lord. And what did the prophet respond to him? Nathan said, hey, go and do all that's in your heart. Sounds good to me. I mean, it seems your motive is spiritual. It seems that it's God honoring. As far as I'm concerned, God must have put it in your heart. Go ahead. Nathan goes back that night, and what does God say to him? Uh, no. It is, you go back and tell him it's not for him. So both David's heart and the prophet's wisdom were wrong. The word of God and the will of God was different than the heart of David, who was even in a sense a man after God's own heart. His heart itself was not trustworthy. God gave it to Solomon. And at that time, Solomon had no interest in doing that. He was but a young man. And so what, what I simply want to lay out for us is we don't trust the heart of man. We don't trust the wisdom of a man. We follow God. We seek him earnestly. And you know what? Sometimes that will take us where we don't want to be. Sometimes that will take us to a place we have zero interest in. But providentially, God has opened that door. Providentially, God has made it clear. And maybe there's an abundance of witnesses that says, brother... Here's an open door at this time. We're going to urge you to, to step forward and serve. But my heart is for the Jews. Would that work? Can you imagine a dialogue like that between Paul and, and, and the Savior? 
want you to go to the uncircumcised. Well, see, the thing is, uh, no. But see, you're the king of my heart, and you put it in my heart this direction. So what do you think? Uh, right here. But no, here. Wow. And so it's not always what we want. It's not always what we think. So then what's the only solution to that? Follow the word. Follow it faithfully. When it's not something that's explicitly laid out, pray. Ask others to pray. Seek godly counsel and look for the hand of God to make things clear. But be cautious. Saul the scourge would learn his lesson. But he would first of all be one of the greatest opposers of the kingdom of God. We move from that, that great persecution of Saul, with Saul speaking, to the scattering of the saints. Look what it says in chapter 8, the second half of verse 1. Uh, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Okay, on that day there arose, again, it's interesting to note this, a great part persecution. So things don't always uh, expect. From tolerance, it went to extreme immediately. It wasn't a slow building snowball or started with a spark and started to ignite. All of a sudden, you had a full-on blaze. And some of us may say, why would God? In his mercy, allow this early church, his people, to be treated this way. Well, first of all, part of our problem is we think that the priority of God is our earthly practical pleasure and comfort. That's not it. In this life, we are pilgrims, sojourners, and exiles. And that's what's going to begin to happen here. Again, I quoted a verse a little earlier from Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Let me finish it now. Jesus speaking before his ascension said to the apostles, he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. All right, these men had received power, correct? And what had they done? Been his witnesses in Jerusalem and Jerusalem, and to the end of Jerusalem. Wait a second, what's, and they're still there. And even as the church is uh, uh, gathered there, what seems to even be happening is people who had, who had located or relocated even for Passover and, and, for, and had heard the gospel and had received Christ, many of them had seemingly relocated. This is where we need to be because this is where the church is. This is where the apostles are. This is where we're instructed. And so here they were locked in this insular place. Were they doing what God called them to do? No. Now you might think, well, look, and so God allowed them to be persecuted so that they would finally be scattered and, and take the gospel out? I think there's a better way. Be careful whenever you think that. That you think there's a better way. Because God's way is always the best way. And it fulfills his purposes and perfect design. And I want us to note this. That even in this. 
as the, the perse great persecution begins, the people are scattered. They're, more literally, they're dispersed. Now, when this happens, it's sort of heartbreaking, the very end of verse 1. They were scattered throughout all the regions, except the apostles. Wait a second. Who were who the ones who first received that message in Acts chapter 1 verse 8? And so what we will see is as we get down from here, uh, next uh, two weeks from now, um, Philip goes and as he, uh, as he preaches the gospel, we'll see, after they receive the gospel, then he calls and the apostles come down. What's so interesting is the apostles only seem to, to disperse by call and compulsion. So note this, though we recognize their absolute authority and truthfulness as apostles for Scripture, they are just men. They are not the perfect examples. We need not choose one and make him our champion. We have one chief shepherd, one glorious champion and victor, and that is Christ. But I love what it begins to say about those who went and were scattered of course, there's, there's a little mixed feeling in it, too, that you'll see in a moment. It says this. Listen to what it says in verse 4. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Amen? Yeah. So, here, what is, what is Saul's goal? To end the name of Jesus. And what is God do using Saul in a sense as a catalyst he spreads the name of Jesus he wants to quash it and end it and instead his efforts end up spreading it wider and broader is God able to defeat the will purposes and intentions of man can God even use those who are at enmity and whose hearts are bent on destruction in delivering his own good purposes? Yes. It was actually those bent on destroying Christ and denying the Son of God that crucified him. And in so doing, they fulfilled exactly what God had predetermined to take place. The redemption from our sins through the crucified and risen Savior. So listen what it says. In uh, Acts chapter 11. We take up a, a similar idea. It says now. In uh, 11 verse 19. Now those who were scattered. Because of the persecution. Um, traveled. Uh, that arose over Stephen. So again the scriptures see that as a key day. And that is the day. That absolutely seemed to be the, the day. That stirred up and ignited Saul. And then God used that ignited Saul to begin this dispersion. And they traveled far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Speaking the word to no one except Jews. Kind of heartbreaking, isn't it? But thankfully, there were a few among them. And the scriptures are going to note that. But there were some of them. 
men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who upon coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. I I just love that because what happens here is um, if you you were to go to John 7, you would see that it speaks of there's a time where the Jews themselves, because of persecution, because of attacks, because of being overcome in victory, they were dispersed. And they're referred to in John chapter 7 as the dispersion. What happens here with the scattering of the church that's spoken of in Acts 8 and Acts 11 is no longer are the Jews the people of God who are scattered abroad. But now it is those in Christ who are the people of God scattered abroad. It is those in Christ who are the dispersion. And Peter himself will take up that idea in 1 Peter chapter 1 and and write his epistle to all the elect, all the believers, writing it like this. Believer, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. The dispersion from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, to the uttermost part of the earth, it began here at the martyrdom of Stephen and at at the instigation of Saul. And it, it says, according to the foreknowledge of God, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Christ and sprinkling with His blood, may the grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a new and living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus. So who are the dispersion now? Now the dispersion are those who by the great mercy of God, he has caused through the proclaimed gospel to be born again. Amen? Brothers and sisters, we are the dispersion. We are the elect dispersed. We are the sojourners and exiles. And Peter will go on to say later, as sojourners and exiles, how ought we live in this world? This world, as old songs say, this world is not our home. We're just a passing through. Our home is laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Now, that gets a little funky. But nonetheless, the idea that it ain't all about this. It ain't all about now. It's, this is the time of service and struggle. Straining and suffering. We do so with peace. We do so with the strength and grace of God. We do so with the confidence that we, by grace, will fully enter into that rest that is ours in Christ. Oh, won't we? But we are those children of the dispersion. But we got to be aware of this. This was not only for them. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 and following, Paul writes to Timothy and reminds them, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You know why? Because we don't shut up. (laughs) Because we don't stop talking. Because everyone has to know that we're all about Christ. 
Everyone has to know that the most important thing is our God and his grace. And so like we've talked about before, everything comes back to that. Yeah, I'll see you. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll meet on Thursday if God wills. Why you got to say that? You know, well, what a what a beautiful day that we have today. Thank God for what he has given us. Oh, did you hear that storm? And to think that storms are but just the whisper and the small pinky, so to speak, of God's power. You think about that when you hear the storm and you hear of, of these tornadoes at times that take up cows or trailers or home and just throw them miles away. And that's but just a little whisper and inkling of the power of God. Everything, every conversation keeps coming back to uh, the thoughts of God. Someone talks about a beautiful individual. Oh, but there is no abiding beauty in this world. But we have one whose beauty and glory transcends and never changes. Amen. And on and on. Everything, every paradigm, every frame of reference for the believer... Everything connects to Christ. Everything connects to God. Even the skills of men who know not God. We glory in the God who has given those men that skill. You know. That, that man. The eye to see. And the sinker. And the knuckler. How in the world. Because there's a lot who can't do that. And we will, men will esteem men and appreciate it. And it's pretty impressive. But we know that whatever men can do that is impressive, what do men have that they've not received? We've all got it from God. And so we understand that. Now we move from great persecution to great power. And this one will come relatively quickly. We see in Acts chapter 8, we're going to go down to Simon the sorcerer. So we've seen Saul the scourge, we've seen the scattering of the saints, and now we see Simon the sorcerer, the evidence of great power. It says in verse 9, there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city. Now, you need to understand this. This is not, um, you know, David Blaine, Chris Angel. This isn't this kind of uh, uh, sleight of hand, Shin Lin type of stuff. This is, he was practicing magic, not card tricks. All right, enchantments, sorcery. Well, I don't believe in magic. Well, interesting. Have you ever heard about the Exodus? And when the staff was thrown to the ground and became a snake, what did the magicians or sorcerers in Egypt do? They threw their little staffies down and they became snakes as well. Sleight of hand? No. Uh, certainly it is the working of the wicked power of the enemy that God has given him some degree of power that he might wield in this world. Now we know it's a certainly a lesser degree as, as the snake, a serpent that God had made from that snap. Quick, staff quickly swallowed up the other ones. And the various plagues that would be blood across all the waterways. You know, the magicians could turn a bucket into blood as well. You know, and, and those that could uh, uh, 
bring gnats to fill the land. Uh, somehow the magicians could get a few gnats to appear where uh, in a room they had stopped them in. But it was always weaker, always diminished, always lesser. But nonetheless, if it's something I can't do and something you can't do, and I cannot throw a staff on the ground and make it turn into a snake. If it's something we can't do and someone does it, then what do we think? That's amazing. That is great. That is incredible power. How did he do that? You know, and, and, and so they'll think he's great. And he came to the city, previously practiced magic, and amazed the people, saying that he himself was someone great. Such a difference we see here, don't we? He comes and he does a few things and he tells people, be aware of this. I'm great. Whereas Philip is going to come down to the land and he's going to say what? Be aware of this. Jesus is great. But what, what are you? Uh, Jesus is great. Why, why are you worried about me? I'm not important. I'm not significant. We see this all the time. How often the apostles themselves, who God had wielded extraordinary power through, would, would introduce themselves as a servant or slave of God. Using low and humble terms. Because who's the chief? Who's the Lord? Who's the master? Who's the king? Who's the exalted one? The idea still remains that was proclaimed by John the Baptist. I must decrease. He must increase. When I leave, the point is not that you remember my name. But you remember his name. Remember who he is. You remember his power. This guy came saying he was great. And it was even saying of him. And all paid attention to him from the greatest to the least. The same thing would happen as Philip comes in. Because he was doing miracles. People would all pay attention to him. And it said this man is the power of the God that is great. Or he is the great power of God. They were looking at him and thinking. He's a God. This man is like a God. Was he though? No, and God was pleased in, in, in shortly, uh, and we remember this, in Matthew 24, uh, verse 24, Scripture reminds us there will be false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've warned you beforehand. So unbelievers, false prophets, false messiahs will perform great signs and wonders. Not fake them as some of the TV guys do now, but will actually perform great signs and wonders. And they're still not of Christ. In Matthew 7, it reminds us that there are some there where Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. Because what? Some will say to me, we did great works of power in your name. Cast out demons in your name. And I will say to them, Jesus says, depart from me for I never knew you. And then he ends it by saying something simple like this. Um, Everyone then who hears my word and does them. See, the real test is who hears the word of Christ and does that. Not who does great miracles and great works of power. Simon did those things, but he was false. And he presented those things. But listen, 
as that great power was there, greater power was manifest because it says they believed Philip as he preached the good news in Acts 8, 12. And they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip, seeing signs and great miracles performed. He was amazed. So he himself, who had done semi-amazing things, is seeing astoundingly amazing things and saying, whatever power he's wielding over here, that's more than I got. I got to get in on that. But listen, not only a greater power, but a greater name. Listen to what it says in Acts 8.5. Philip went down to Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. He didn't proclaim himself. He proclaimed Christ. Philip went down and the King James says he preached Christ unto them. In Acts 8, verse 6 and 7, it says, And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him. When what, what uh, Simon was saying was this. I am great. I am the great power of God. And they accepted it and called him that. A greater power has come. But what I do love about this is they're not just seeing the power, they're listening to what the power evidences. And they hear of Christ. And Christ declared, speaks of absolute preeminence, eternal power, authoritative purpose, all accomplished. And so it says this, um, you remember back um, when, when Christ was preached earlier on, in Acts chapter 3, this is what it says. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted you. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. I mean, look at that. Holy and righteous one. Author of life. God raised from the dead. I mean, it's unfolding things about Christ that the world would never conceive. We're preaching a Christ that defies men's imaginations. A salvation that is only in him and in no other. Reminding you in Acts 4.12 it tells us this. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Amen. I mean, this is the one. And it says this, uh, of course, he, as he was serving, unclean spirits were coming out, crying out with a loud voice. Uh, many of the paralyzed and lame were being healed. But even more glorious than that, they were turning in repentance and faith. As it says in verse 12, when he preached the good news about the kingdom of God. And remember, the kingdom of God is preached by Christ and by John. Was repent and be baptized. It's a, it's a pointing out of that estrangement, estrangement and sin. The resurrection and righteousness of the Holy One and the author of life. The salvation that is in the risen one. The demonstration of all these miracles, particularly in these days, is because all the word, the reputation, the story about Christ was known far and wide. There is one who's going around who's doing this preaching. He was killed. But when men are coming in his name and saying, he lives, 
And as they say he lives, they are wielding power over demons, over the lame, over, over the, uh, the crippled, in his name, and they're being healed, doing the very same things he was doing. It demonstrated to those who had only heard rumors of his demise that he is alive. He is living. We live in a slightly different age because we live in a world where everyone hears of Christ, hears of his resurrection, not only of his death. They just deny one or the other or both. But I want us to see this. Acts chapter 8 verse 8 says, So there was much joy in the city. He baptized both men and women. There was much joy in the city. Remember David at a time of compromise and a sin. He calls out in Psalm 51 uh, verse 12. He says, restore unto me the joy of my salvation and renew a right spirit in me. In Psalm 20 verse 5 it says this. May we shout for joy over your salvation. In the name of God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Much joy over a great and risen Savior, over victory over death, his lordship over man. He who was dead is now alive. He is ascended. He is powerful. He is merciful. And he promises grace to all who come to him in faith. Listen to this. This passage tells us uh, three simple thoughts. Great persecution, great power, and, and, and a greater name. The great persecution in this passage came through Saul the scourge. That was designed by God to produce the scattering of the saints so that the gospel runs forward and is dispersed abroad. Great power. The enemy wields a great degree of power. Simon the sorcerer did so. But brothers and sisters, a greater power has come. And Christ triumphed over principalities and powers he triumphed over visible and invisible the rulers of this present age and the rulers of the air he triumphed over all victorious over the grave amen this is our God a greater power has come the scattering of the saints led to the spreading abroad of the proclaiming of a greater name they gave a, an excellent and amazing name to Simon you, they called him the power of God who is great. Jesus is the God who is great and gracious. And it also declared, and we see the salvation there in Samaria. Salvation through Jesus Christ and him alone. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you so much that we could spend again a little time in your word and there is always so much richness in it that we could spend much more time. But today we just want to glory in your purposes. That even in the difficult days of our lives, the persecutions and the struggles, you are working out your purposes. Unseen to us, you are fulfilling your purposes in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we pray that our heart's desire would be to fulfill whatever purpose you have called us to. To yield to you, to submit to your word. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed to us a greater power than any of the enmity or anything we might see in this world. A sure hope and salvation. We thank you, Lord, that you have revealed to us that great and greatest name that is above every name. The one at whose name every 
knee will bow and tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord, we know that we will either do so recognizing him merely as a righteous judge or as those by grace in Christ will see not only his righteous judgment, but that he is a gracious savior, loving and merciful elder brother who has attached himself to us in love. Lord, we thank you that he who died is risen again. And because he lives, there is salvation, there is power, there is hope, there is a gospel, there is a name to proclaim, and there is glory to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.